Okay, so we had a long passage this morning, 2 Kings 6, 24 through chapter 7, verse 20. And it's kind of a long story with a lot of parts to it. But the main thing that we see here as we read this passage is the desperate need of God's people for God's deliverance. And that's just what we need. And that's just what we need to see in this passage, that as the Israelites desperately needed God to save, so we desperately need God to save. And you have a lot of different characters in this story who react very differently to a very bad and very sad situation. And so we're going to examine some of those characters and we're going to see in this story of God's deliverance how we should respond. Now, this is not the first story of God's deliverance. We've, we're kind of in a series of a few different stories that are told about Elisha's use by God in bringing about deliverance in various ways. And so you've got private individual stories that seem very small and little to us, like the axe head that was lost. And then you've got this citywide siege in this story. Um, <clears throat> last week we had a citywide uh, siege, but it didn't last very long. Last lasted less than a day. Um, and it was really focused on killing Elisha. This one is different. <coughs> Excuse me. This one's different. And uh, it is a long, drawn-out siege that has gotten to the point where people are starving to death. And apparently many of them have already starved and died during this siege. And the first thing that I want you to see here is that the king can't do anything. That might seem obvious. Certainly it becomes clear as you read the story, but the king can't do anything. The king can't do a single thing. Now, of course, we know he is still alive. He can, he can literally do things. But in terms of saving God's people, he can't deliver them. He can't even deliver himself. Sometimes we forget this and we begin to think that what we really need is a better president. We don't. And, and this king is no good. And I don't mean to say he had no negative impact. I don't mean to say a better king couldn't have a positive impact. But what we need is God's deliverance. And when we limit to God, when we, when we limit God, to what we think is the necessary means of our deliverance, we end up falling into the error that the king's, uh, what was he called in our passage? What did they call him? I forgot already. 
No, no, the, the, the king's royal officer is what, the, what it says in, in verse 19. The, the guy that the king rested his arms upon, right? That, that walked next to him and supported him. This guy doesn't see any way that God can save. His, his imagination isn't nearly as big as God's is one of the things that I like to point out to us when, when we think that we know what is necessary for our help or what is impossible to help us, or how it's impossible that God could accomplish anything. I mean, your imagination, my imagination, this royal officer's imagination isn't nearly as big as God's imagination. And so when we think, oh, well, you know, we got a bad president, we got a bad senator, we, you know, we got a bad mayor. We got a bad rep. We got a. We look to we look to the solution as though politics is going to be the answer. But we reveal our own blindness when we assume that the powers of this world are going to be the solution to our problems. The king of Israel can't do anything here. And the woman calls out to the king, Oh Lord, my king, help me. And he says, correctly, if the Lord doesn't help you, what can I do? He's helpless. And so it's easy for us to think that if he's helpless, that we are helpless. Right? You, I mean, you see how easy that is to fall into that error, right? The people who have the most power can't do anything for us. So I guess nothing can be done. But of course, they're just the people with the most power. And it's no surprise that they can't do anything. This king who can't do anything, is not a good king. He's not good in this story. Even as he says, if the Lord, verse 27, if the Lord does not help you, from where shall I help you? From the threshing floor? From the wine press? Not like I can make food for you, right? Even as he says that, it's clear that he's blaming God for this. And that he doesn't actually have any hope that God will help her, right? The Lord's not helping you. What do you expect me to do? He's not a good king, he's not repentant, though he's wearing sackcloth as we see a couple verses later, right? He does not fear the Lord. He does not trust in the Lord. And yet God saves him and the people of the city anyway. God is not limited to saving or to not saving on the basis of whether or not you have a good ruler. Don't lose track 
and think that you're dependent on political power as the help that God is required to use to save you. Let alone forgetting that it would be God accomplishing that. Not your president, not your senator, or whoever else you're looking to. It would be God accomplishing it in any case. God saves anyway. So put your hope in him. Now the king, the king blames God for the problems and then says that he's done trusting God. The king blames God and then says he's done trusting God. Why should I keep looking <clears throat> to the Lord? Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? Verse 33. This evil is from the Lord. Hello? God is the one who sent this problem. Why should I look to him? Okay, now, in our reasoning, that's a very, that, that is a very obvious, seemingly reasonable response. Right? It's, it's very easy for us when we see the truth of God's sovereignty and we recognize that trials and tribulations come from his hand or by his permission, right? It's very easy for us to see that and then be like, I was in God's hand and look what he allowed to happen to me. Why should I trust him any longer? I expected good from his hand and he gave me bad. This is the response of Lot's wife when she says, curse God and die. Curse God and die. This is, this is the same reasoning that the king is using here, right? This evil is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? Now what the king is saying is that he has been waiting for the Lord, right? Him putting on sackcloth under his royal robes. Again, that's repentance, right? Well, it's meant to be the appearance of repentance anyway. But is this king repentant? It's clear he's not, right? If the Lord won't help you, what am I supposed to do? This is caused by God anyway. Why should I be looking to him? But he's wearing sackcloth. So obviously he's, he's repentant and, and putting his hope in the Lord and humbling himself before the Lord just like Elisha advised, right? Now I want you to see here that what we've got is those, those two kind of very opposite, very similar looking responses, right? Humbling ourselves by putting on sackcloth, for instance, is the appropriate response when God sends trials, when God sends tribulation, when He sends danger, when He sends His discipline in one way or another, right? We ought to respond with humility 
it's appropriate for us to kneel when we confess our sins to the Lord, right? It's very similar to putting on sackcloth. It's a physical thing that you do to demonstrate and to remind yourself, yes, I'm going to God. And yet, of course, we all know that it's very easy to kneel and to not mean anything by it about our own repentance, right? If the reason you kneel during our prayer of confession is so that you won't look odd to other people because everyone else is kneeling, that's not repentance. That's not humbling yourself. That's in your pride refusing to be different. That's worrying about man and fearing man rather than fearing God. That's what the king is doing here. It's a very different thing. So it, just like it's possible for us to come to the Lord's table and eat and drink judgment on ourselves, how could you eat it? Uh, how, how could this be bad coming to the Lord's Supper? After all, it's a meal reminding us and proclaiming again the sacrifice that Jesus Christ made for the forgiveness of our sins. How could it possibly be bad to eat this meal? And yet, it's possible to do it precisely the opposite way from what's intended, right? And therefore to eat and drink judgment on ourselves. And so it's possible for the king to put on sackcloth and to hate God, to, to humble himself before the Lord. Like Elisha says, wait on the Lord. Now, now we don't have Elisha's advice to the king in here except implicitly by the king's response, right? The king says, why should I keep waiting on the Lord? And of course, what we realize by that is that the king has been in contact with Elisha. Elisha has been giving his counsel and that's why when it gets to be so bad and, and he's, the, the king is, the king has apparently been sort of like, you know, of two minds. Remember what James says about the man who is double-minded. He's unstable in all his ways. He's putting on sackcloth because Elisha says, wait on the Lord and humble yourself before the Lord. And his, in his time, he will rescue, right? And the king puts on sackcloth and waits and he's walking on the wall and then he says, I'm going to kill Elisha. That's pretty double-minded, right? And yet God saves him anyway. But one of the things that we might not remember, although I hope you do, having just read Leviticus, this is one of two places that I could have gone to point to, we've got this terrible, tragic story of these two women eating the son of one of them and, and, and the horror of the story only being compounded when you think that this woman is going to go to the king and ask for him to help her. What does she want his help doing? She wants help from the king in finding and killing another baby to eat. It's horrible. And yet, this is not and should not be a surprise to them or to us. 
Leviticus 26, 27 through 29 says, Yet if in spite of this you do not obey me, God is speaking to his people about them going into the promised land. and He's giving them the promises of his covenant that, that he will be a God to them and to their children, right? You, you know all these covenant promises and the blessings that he will pour out on them. The, the, the land is flowing with milk and honey. Yet if in spite of this you do not obey me but act with hostility against me, then I will act with wrathful hostility against you and I, even I, will punish you seven times for your sins. Further, you will eat the flesh of your sons and the flesh of your daughters you will eat. This tragedy is a fulfillment of God's covenant curses on his people if they reject him. This tragedy is proof that God keeps his promises. It's a sad proof But it is an absolutely inescapable proof, isn't it? I would never do that. I would never do that. That's that's not something I'm afraid of. And yet, when God says, if you don't fear me and you don't love me and you don't keep my commandments, this is what's going to happen. It doesn't matter how much you think you would never do it. That's what's going to happen. When he says that's what's going to happen, that's what's going to happen. This, this particular confirmation is a very unpleasant confirmation, right? Just like Hebrews 12 says, the discipline is unpleasant for the moment. This confirmation of God's promises is very unpleasant, but it should be confirmation of our trust in God and in His power. When you see precisely what God says will happen, come to pass, what should your response be besides, yeah, what God says is true. My hope's in Him. And so the king sees the fulfillment of God's word and instead of then doing what God says will bring about restoration, reconciliation, and salvation, truly humbling ourselves and repenting, right? What does he do? He becomes angry at God for fulfilling his word. What does it do to you when God fulfills his promises? Does it depend on which promise he's fulfilling? You you see, it's very easy for us to say, oh yeah, when God blesses me, I rejoice. When God pours out money, I give thanks. When I'm healthy, I praise him with my body by exercising so that I can look better 
before men. But I thank God. You you see, it's very easy for us to to be grateful to God in in a shallow sort of way. When he fulfills his covenant promises of blessing, right? And then at the same time, to be very angry at him when he fulfills the promises of what it will look like when he pours out his wrath if we are unrepentant, if we harden our hearts, if we break his covenant. And so, I want you to, I want you to think about this. Here, here we've got this city. And maybe if you've read Job, you, you've, you've struggled through thinking about this, like if this happened to me, if, you know, I lost all my stuff, lost all my possessions, lost all my health, lost my children, had my wife turning against God, what would I do? Oh my goodness, that's terrible, right? Maybe it's easier for you to place yourself in this story. I don't know. But in this story, if you think about being in that city and the desperation that they had for food, and you think, that's horrible. And you think, God allowed them to suffer such hunger that they're dying. God allowed them to suffer such hunger that they're eating each other, that they're eating their own sons. What is the matter with God? Why would he do that? Isn't that what we so often think when we face so small, light discipline from him? And isn't that why we have such a reaction against him when we see this? But this is a fulfillment of his promises. When you see God fulfilling his promises, what do you do? Does it cause you to put your faith more firmly and strongly in his hands and say, I'm all yours? Though you slay me, I'm in your hands. Or does it make you angry and say, I wanted better from this life. I wanted better from my God. God saves. And I, I don't know how to I don't know how to think about this. You know, you see that this is that this is him fulfilling his promises pouring out judgment on the people of Israel because they have turned away from him. They have broken his covenant. They have begun to worship idols. They've got the golden calves. They've got, a, they've got nothing right about their worship. Nothing right except for the fact that God has given them Elisha. Right? I mean, there's, there's just nothing good here. And yet God still saves them. 
How does God save them? He makes the enemy run away. I mean, it's, it's funny. He just makes the enemy run away. Were they literally hearing the horses and chariots of his army? We don't know. I mean, we know from the previous chapter, right, that there's horses and chariots around. <laughs> when Elisha prays that the eyes of his servant be opened and his eyes are open, he's like, oh, God's, God's army. There, there's such a thing as God's army. And now here the enemies hear the sound of horses and chariots and they get scared. Not because they realize that God's army is present, but because they think that the, all the foreign armies around have been hired to come and they're going to they're gonna be attacked suddenly by uh, the, the surrounding kings and their armies, right? And so they run away. And so how did God save? He didn't use any earthly means. He didn't use those other kings. He didn't use those other armies. He didn't use the king. He just makes them run away. There was no earthly means. Now God often uses normal earthly means to accomplish his work and his promises, right? But when we think that that's the only way he can accomplish his work is when we stop believing in God and when we only start believing in what we can see and feel and touch, right? And hear. And, and then all of a sudden we're reminded in this story, you know what, you can hear things that aren't really there or that are really there, but they're in the spiritual realm, right? We, we don't, again, we don't know. We know they heard. He caused them to hear. But we realize, oh, God is not confined. God is not constrained to use these kinds of earthly means that we, that we think of as normal. He didn't raise up a better king who was going to uh, suddenly be able to inspire the starving, small group of people who were left alive to go out and storm the invading forces who were rested and strong and healthy and had horses and no no and that's why when the when the uh, when the king's royal officer says if God opened windows in heaven could this happen he's doing precisely what we so often do which is to think how could God possibly make this good how could God possibly change this situation how could, how could God possibly restore this relationship? How could God possibly accomplish salvation? And of course, that last one we're going we're to come back to. It is the most impossible. Accomplishing our spiritual salvation. Utterly impossible. There is no earthly means for it to happen, right? But, but set that salvation aside for a second and think about the things that feel like something earthly could be done. 
the things that you're struggling with, the things that you're worried about, the things that are driving you to despair, to think that there's nothing that God could possibly do because there's no way you look around that anything could possibly get better. What could possibly change? I mean, even if, even if, even if we allow miracles, like the windows of heaven opening up, there are no windows in heaven. But, you know, if like, if windows opened and grain started coming down, like, like, how could that change anything? We'd still be under siege. There, it doesn't, even a miracle couldn't accomplish this for me. What is your faith in? What is your hope in? If your hope is in God in this life only, you are severely mistaken in what it means to be a Christian. And you are of all men most to be pitied. A Christian that's worried only about the things of this world? That doesn't make any sense. To be a Christian is to worry about the things of eternity. To be a Christian is to believe in the resurrection, in life to come. And so, therefore, to have a changed perspective on this life and on what God can accomplish in this life and on what he is accomplishing in this life. It totally changes your perspective to think about there being a resurrection. And so, how does God save Miraculously, he makes the enemy run away for no apparent reason. Certainly no earthly means. And then what does he do? He uses lepers as the messengers of good news. Lepers. Dirty, rotting lepers. It's kind of like having the good news delivered by a pastor. I mean, of all the things, God could use angels, right? This is one of the points Calvin makes several places in the institute. But instead, he's chosen to use sinful men to deliver the good news of salvation. Amazing. And here we've got the lepers, and the lepers go out, and what do they discover? God has saved. Already, God has saved. But nobody knows it. Somebody's got to tell them. And you see their selfishness, and you see their guilt, and you see their, you see their realization. And praise God, they decide to go and spread the good news. And the end result, of course, is there's food. A plenty. And so precisely what God had said through Elisha was going to happen, it happens. Things are selling for totally different prices, 
the very next day. And yet that official, he also receives what God said would happen through Elisha, which was that he would see it with his own eyes, but he would not eat of it. This official ends up seeing the truth of God's glorious promise of salvation, but he doesn't taste it. Some of you have no fear of God and are concerned only about the things of this world and of this life. You do not want to be this man who ends up seeing God's salvation but not tasting it. Others of you, having heard that, begin to fear because you know your unbelief. You know how weak your faith is. You know how often you doubt. But note the unbelief that is condemned here. What is condemned? What does this royal official do? He refuses to believe that God can save. He refuses to believe that God can save. And so we come to our salvation. Our spiritual eternal salvation. Being saved body and soul, right? Don't get sucked into a circular pattern of seeing your sin, seeing your faithlessness, seeing your fear, seeing your doubts, seeing your lack of faith. And then, taking away from that, some sort of doubt that God can save you. You see, all of those things, God is perfectly able to overcome. We see it in our passage. All the sins of the king of Israel who has disbelief, who has faithlessness, who has double-mindedness, who has all of these problems, right? And yet he's saved. And I don't mean he's spiritually saved, I just mean God rescues him, right? He rescues him even though he's saying God isn't saving. And this is God's fault. And these are all things that you may have said yourself. In your heart. Maybe even to others.
And so is your takeaway that your sin is so bad that God cannot save you? That's the takeaway of the royal officer. Things have gotten so bad, even a miracle that God could not save. Can God save you? He can save this city. He can save sinners. He can save you. So, don't look at your sin. Don't look at your failures. Don't look at your faithlessness. Don't look at that and, and, and then say, yeah, I'm too bad for God to save. Or see, all of these things are evidence that God couldn't possibly have chosen me to save. No, none of those things are evidence that God couldn't possibly have chosen you. All they are evidences of is your need of Him. Of His salvation. Because everybody in the world is just like you in that. Needing God's salvation. Everybody's starving. Everybody's hopeless. Everybody's a sinner. Can God save you? Even after you've eaten your son, can God save you? Even after you've fallen once again into the same old sin, the one that you promised you would never do again, now you've sinned twice as bad because you said you wouldn't do it. You read of this royal officer being trampled at the end and you've got two choices. You can look at it and say, yeah, see, God can't save. I'm going to be trampled in the end. God won't save me. In which case, you are responding like the royal official. I'm impossible to save. So, so don't fall into that circle, right? But see him being trampled and say, yeah, God always does what he says he'll do. And he can save anybody. And so, my hope's in him. My hope is in him. Only him, he saves. So my hope's in him. Heavenly Father, Satan tempts us day in and day out. He is the accuser. And when he accuses, he says we can't be saved. But Father, we know you can save us. We've seen your power displayed in the heavens. We've seen it displayed on the earth. We've seen your salvation 
your name glorified. Sinners changed. And then, Father, we see our own sin again. And Satan says, yeah, but not you. You haven't seen his salvation. But, Father, you save your people. And so we cast ourselves before you, before your throne. And we claim your promises, knowing that what you have said you will do, you will do. And you have promised that you will not turn aside those who seek you. but that we will find. And that if we knock, the door will be opened. And that you will not break a bruised reed. And that you will use discipline for our good. And so, Father, we, we claim all of these promises And Father, we look to you and we humbly and confidently say, Dad, you said you would. Now do it. Save your people. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.